Hey, I'm Scott. How's it going? All right, good. Welcome to the show. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Come on, Scott, energy up, man. Act like you're still interested in this crap. Yeah, uh, the government, uh, they're killing people. Lots and lots of people. So we'll be covering that on the show today. Plenty of news and three interviews. Sarah Helm is on. She wrote this thing at, was it the New Yorker, London? I think it was the New York Review of Books, right? Yeah, New York Review of Books, ISIS in Gaza. ISIS in Gaza by Sarah Helm. And it really should be called Hamas versus ISIS in Gaza. But anyway, uh, very interesting article. Damn, I kind of meant to go back and reread the first half. Well, that's what commercial breaks are for. Uh, very good stuff, though. Um, you'll want to read that. And then uh, also Jackie Shine is here. She's writing at Pacific Standard, psmag.com, Inside the Police Industrial Complex. And uh, this was sent to me yesterday by J.P. Sotilli, the news vandal. And he said, hey, Scott, check it out in case you missed it. Um, and it's, uh, this reporter went to the 2015 convention of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And of course, it's just a big trade show for buying equipment and rationalizations for destroying the lives and freedom and property of the people of the country, you know, where we live, where they're supposedly sworn to be our protectors. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Can't believe anybody believes that. You ever read uh, Murray Rothbard, uh, Anatomy of the State? It starts out, what the state is not. And then I forgot exactly how he says it, but it's, yeah, they're not your security force, okay? That's just public relations, see? They are your enemy. Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard, if you want to read that. Anyway, uh, Jackie Shine. Inside the police industrial complex, uh, this great trade show news report she did here. And then, guess what? I actually have good news to start out the show today. We'll be covering this with Andy Worthington, the heroic Andy Worthington. Um, Obama sent a bunch of Yemenis home from, uh, from Guantanamo Bay. Uh, not to Yemen, not home to Yemen, actually, but set them free, sent them to Oman, reported Carol Rosenberg, um, the, I guess, formerly McClatchy, now just Miami Herald reporter, uh, based out of Guantanamo Bay. And so that's huge progress. I don't know if maybe Obama actually, he, he brought it up in the State of the Union. Maybe he's going to do everything he can to close that thing down. I mean, the only way to really close it down would be, like you've heard me often propose on the show, just order the officers to close the damn thing down, take the ones that they actually want to put on trial, and put them on a boat to Florida, Instruct the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Prisons that you better meet them at the shore, dude. You better impanel a grand jury, because we're doing this. 
Somebody call a judge and get a warrant for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's arrest. And then that's it. Uh, any president can make any soldier move or be court-martialed. So that's it. General close-up shop, that's it. Prison's closed. The ones that we're not going to try are free to go. You know, because this is America. That used to be shorthand for, you know, we believe in freedom and the rule of law. Stuff like that. I know now it means, you know, look the hell out, we'll explode you to death or whatever. We're America, we're going to come free you right out of your skin. I'm just saying, it used to, the the cliche itself had a, a different connotation in a former time. In an era back before you were born. <clears throat> That's all. All right. Anyway, so this is just funny and stupid. Uh, Barbara Starr, who of course is just the Pentagon flack posing as a CNN reporter. She really is a funny lady, kind of in a way. Um, but she's all over CNN this morning with the Pentagon line that despite what footage you may have seen of the sailor's commander, Telling the Iranians, yeah, it was our mistake. We're real sorry. We went into your uh, internet or into your national waters there and whatever. That, oh, no, you know what? They were really tired at the time that he was made to say that. And he, it was clear that his statement was not made under his own free will. And then hairdo lady, the news anchor, goes, oh, yeah, oh, my God, totally, I know, Barbara Starr, you're totally right that, obviously, you know, that is the case. And then the next guest came on and says, oh, yeah, I don't care what anybody says about anything. The deal is, is when that sailor said that, uh, sailor said that he clearly was under duress at the time. <laughs> what? Now, I know that the Pentagon has their thing where they say what they want us to think and all that. But don't, isn't there some kind of algorithm and with some kind of, you know, special military jargon to describe it that says that if your story is such BS that not even anybody's mom will believe you, then go ahead and just shut up because you're just making yourself look stupid. The sailor clearly made the statement a few hours into his captivity, which lasted less than one full day. And then there's the picture of him with his little juice box. <laughs> you know, like he's drinking a little high C or a little apple juice. And they're all just sitting there bored. None of them were interrogated. They're all in a room together. He's the commander, and the guy's, you know, 300 pounds of muscle. He, It's hard to portray him as, like, this poor, pathetic, weak, compromised sailor who had no choice, you know. He's like, yeah, and then the way he says, like, yeah, you know, that really was our mistake, you know. Sorry about that. <laughs> In the most casual way. And then Barbara Starr, the best that she can come up with for the CNN audience, CNN audience this morning, he was tired. 
And of course, you're just supposed to think of the Manchurian candidate or something, right? Of the, the stories of Korean War POWs who were brainwashed into, you know, saying these crazy things. But of course, that story was completely bogus. They weren't brainwashed at all. That was just a cover story for the fact that they were admitting to committing war crimes and carpet bombing civilians off the face of the earth deliberately. And um, I'm trying to remember now. I think, oh, yeah, uh, Jeff Kay had written about this in the past um, about their use of biological weapons and how they had admitted to using biological weapons. And so that was when the Pentagon went, oh, whoa, 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 no, they've been brainwashed. Everybody looked at communists, learned brainwashing techniques. <clears throat> Pay no attention to what the brainwashed man just said. That was the whole thing was a lie in the first place. And then I think one of the PO, one or two of the POWs acted kind of weird when he was being filmed because he was trying to cause a controversy. Like, you know, I am a robot, do what I say or whatever. And they're like, oh, no, he's been brainwashed. Um, anyway, uh, even according to that lie, though, those men had been captive for months and had been brainwashed and sleep deprived and tortured and, you know, treated like they'd been at a CIA black site or something, undergone the full MK Ultra. These American sailors were in custody for a few hours. Oh, they were tired and under duress. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Okay, guys, I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. It's libertarian foreign policy, mostly. Sarah Helm is coming up here in a few to talk about this piece about ISIS in Gaza. You're going to want to hear this, man. All right, I covered that, and I covered that. Hey, listen, so uh, the judge, is he on antiwar.com today, or we're holding it till tomorrow? I can't keep my day straight anymore here, man. I need more coffee in my brain. No, so the judge is going to run tomorrow. Um, you can maybe find it at Lou Rockwell or somewhere else today. Oh, you know what? I have a separate news story anyway. Uh, uh, this is from The Hill. Report, FBI expands investigation of Clinton. And this is a Fox News scoop, but apparently it's a legit one. That not only is the FBI currently investigating, I and mean, it's not specifically a criminal investigation of her but they are investigating the improper email this and that which we'll talk about in a second but uh, they have expanded have a separate investigation going on as well into donations 
to the Clinton Family Foundation, the conflicts of interest in her time as Secretary of State. And as the judge puts it, there's been so much independent research done on this that has been turned over to the FBI. And, you know, they know. They have it. And then, as the judge puts it, I'm going to go ahead and spoil the judge's article for you. The judge is not a dummy. Napolitano, I'm talking about. And he says, hey, look, you know, she's Hillary Clinton, right? So, it's going to be very difficult for, you know, average FBI gumshoe cops to actually get her prosecuted with their work. I mean, it's just she's got such political power. Think of who she is. She's the Democratic front runner. She is the presidential front runner in most polls and certainly in the media's eye. And so the political pressure to not indict her is going to be huge. But at the same time, that is going to be its own political crisis. Because you're going to have professional law enforcement types in the FBI and the Justice Department complaining and leaking to the media. And here's the thing about it. Now, I don't know all the details of the Clinton Foundation bribery and whatever, but I bet she's guilty. I presume she's guilty. And... There are two sides to every argument, but certainly the accusations are, yeah, look, money goes to the foundation, policies change. Here, 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 and here, and here, and here, and here. So, uh, yeah, doesn't that sound right? Sounds right. Presumption of guilt. We're talking about the Clintons here. But then the other thing is this. This isn't about presumption. This is about just known facts. She's just guilty. She is just purely guilty in black type with a period at the end of uh, breaking the law in the way she handled classified materials on her unclassified email server, and um, including satellite photos, National Reconnaissance Office satellite photos of North Korea's nuclear program, including instructing in her emails... Um, and I don't know for a fact whether the aide followed through with this or not. That may have been reported. But she tells an aide, just cut the part that says classified off or says secret or whatever off, confidential, and send it over the regular facts anyway. This isn't the satellite picture. This is something else. But anyway, and there are a few things like that. And here's the point that the judge makes about that is the law is very clear that you don't have to have meant any harm to be held accountable for this. And the Obama administration, more than any other administration in American history, including Wilson or anybody, has been absolutely ruthless in prosecuting federal government employees who leak classified material. They have a whole new insider threat program and all of this stuff. And he prosecutes them for espionage. And... The judge cites examples like a sailor who was prosecuted for espionage because he took a selfie and sent it to his girlfriend, but there was a radar screen behind him, right? He wasn't spying for a foreign power. He was being sloppy and loose lips sink ships, and I can't do a tongue twister, and he's sitting in the brig right now. And if the law applies to American citizens equally... Like in the pretension, 
then Hillary goes to prison. She's already proven guilty of violating all of the Espionage Act restrictions. And as the judge says, before she's even sworn in, the FBI gives her basically a class on how to handle classified material. And she knows that the punishment is prison. And what's funny about this is this is like the one crime that a government official could possibly go to prison for, right? Especially on the national government level, but hell, on any level. Government employees can do anything they want with us. Anything. They can break any law. They can commit any crime. And there is no accountability whatsoever. But, boy, you leak the national government secrets, they will nail you to the freaking wall. Ask Jeffrey Sterling. And so, I don't know. Does it matter? Oh, come on, Scott Horton. It was just a BJ. No, it's just perjury in front of a federal grand jury. Oh, it's just an email. Hey, either there's a law or there's not. And I guess as long as you admit there's not one, cool. But then we ought to all be free to do whatever we want to then. Doesn't seem right that there is what amounts to a totalitarian system of law for the average American schmuck and none that binds the behavior of our so-called leaders whatsoever. And here's the thing about it. The FBI is investigating. These are both open investigations. Now, they'll probably be, you know, squandered and shut down just the same as the investigations of the torturers and their lawyers and their civilian bosses uh, by the uh, Eric Holder administration. But, you know, it could still make for a hell of a scandal. And, you know, I got to tell you, man, and Trump is just, he's just proven more and more what a jerk he is and how it doesn't hurt him at all every single day. And I think that, I think that he could whoop Hillary's ass. I think that Hillary has so many, her negatives are so high and have been for so long. And his too, I guess, you know, people who don't like Trump really don't like him, but comes down to, you know, who's guilty of more felonies and who's willing to accuse the other just without the slightest compunction outside of all the normal, you know, manners on that level of politics. I don't know how she's going to withstand the onslaught. And just think, if you worked for Trump and your job was coming up with talking points about Hillary Clinton, you'd never run out. Or where he can say, like, hey, look, go look at her emails where she's being warned that she's fighting for al-Qaeda in Libya and she knows it and does it anyway. It's indisputable. It's right there in black and white. And he's willing to say that kind of thing, probably, right? And that would hurt her, right? Don't you get sick of the Israel lobby trying to get us into more wars in the Middle East? Or always abusing Palestinians with your tax dollars? It once seemed like the lobby would always have full-spectrum dominance on the foreign policy discussion in D.C. But those days are over. The Council for the National Interest is the America lobby, standing up and pushing back against the Israel lobby's undue influence on Capitol Hill. Go show some support at CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. That's CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. 
Who says Austrian school libertarians have to be statists on immigration? We should support government goons busting people's heads to keep them out of the country? Well, some have tried to make that case in the past. But now David Hathaway's hard-hitting new book, Immigration, Individual versus National Borders, refutes, point by point, every argument they've made. This is a short, well-written book that shuts down the closed borders argument once and for all. Immigration, Individual versus National Borders by David Hathaway. Forward by me. Buy it now on Amazon.com in both print and Kindle versions. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. And I am uh, belatedly, quickly hurrying to find a bio for my first guest on the show today. And, well, it looks like I failed. Well, I'll tell you this about her. She wrote this great article, very important article. I really hope you'll look at it. It's in the New York Review of Books. It's called ISIS in Gaza. And uh, the author is Sarah Helm. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hello? Can you I'm hear me all right? I'm very well. Thank you. Oh, hi. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm sorry. I am completely negligent. I was sitting here uh, rereading the first part of the article, and I forgot to get your bio up and going here. Um, but, um, oh, it no. says here that you wrote a book called If This Is a Woman, another called A Life in Secrets, and another called Loyalty. Is that right? That is right, although the third one was actually a play, um, but the first two were books, yeah. Oh, there you go. correct. All right, well, so I mostly failed to introduce you properly, but at least I got that right. No uh, problem. <laughs> any, anything else important we need to know? Uh, well, I, I guess I spent most of my working life as a journalist, working for British newspapers and some American newspapers from time to time, and uh, quite a lot of the time abroad. Um, so then I, then I, then I turned to, to writing books, but I'm still work as a journalist as well. I see. And you write about uh, quite a bit of your experience in the Gaza Strip in this article here. Um, so that, That's that right, much yes. is certainly established. Uh, it's such an important tale that you tell here in this article. Um, I guess if it's okay with you, we'll just start, uh, the interview in the same place as the article with, uh, Sheikh Omar Homs. Uh, can you please yes. explain to us who he is and what is his importance? Well, Sheikh Omar Homs is a, a Salafi sheikh in Gaza. He's a very important one. That means that he is a, um, you could call him an extremist um, Sunni religious figure. He is uh, the Salafis are people who believe in returning to the very original message of Muhammad in, in, in absolute literal detail. They follow his every word and his every deed. Um, so so they are, in a way, we would call them today extremist, fundamentalist, fanatics. But Omar Hams is, is really a peaceful man. He's not a, some of these uh, extreme Salafis believe in, in jihad, in violence and and vices have grown out of the, the Salafi um the Salafi group, or some of them have, um, but but they're also peaceful uh, versions of this faith, and and he's one of them. He uh, runs a, an organisation in Gaza uh, called the Ibn Baz Institute, which is a, has a charitable arm. It ha- it also teaches people and and tries to persuade people to take up this fundamentalist version of Islam. And he's a very influential uh, voice, particularly in Rafa, which is a very, very poor, very badly damaged area right on the southern end of the Strip. Um, and he has increasingly had a following, as have many other sheikhs of his ilk in Gaza in recent years, as people have turned more and more to this extreme branch of, of, of the um, Muslim faith. All right. Now, 
Well, and of course, as always happens. But so there's a lot to discuss as far as uh, this guy and and the people like him and the groups like him and their relationship with Hamas. But maybe now would be a good time to remind people a, a you know kind of thumbnail sketch of the situation in the Gaza Strip yeah. and why anybody there yeah. would be listening to anybody like this. Well, um, Gaza is part of the Israeli-occupied territories. It is illegally occupied by Israel, as, as, as set out in all international law, and including the UN and the American position. Um, Gaza is the most extraordinary, unique sort of uh, land uh, prison, if you like. It's called, often called an open-air prison. It's got about 1.8 million people live there. A very large percentage of those people are already refugees and, 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 and have their families originally came there during the, the war of 1948. Um, the status of the West of Gaza as the West Bank, the other occupied Palestinian territory, has never been decided. Hence this sort of ongoing conflict. Um, but Gaza has um, been particularly troubled of late because um as the peace has remained increasingly elusive, people have become more and more desperate and uh, they have turned to more and more sort of extreme forms of leadership and, and radical forms of leadership. They chose uh, uh, Hamas as their leaders um, back in 2007. Hamas were, are, are, are listed by the U.S. and many other states as a terrorist organization themselves. They are also an Islamic organization. Um, it, they, they, they follow uh, extreme forms of Islam. But they are nothing like as extreme as the, 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 the Salafi religion, which is now stepping in uh, to, to make Hamas seem like moderates. Now, one of the reasons that um, this further uh, extreme point of view has begun to take hold is that in order to punish the Gazans for choosing Hamas as their leaders back in 2007, the United States and many other countries, including the Europeans, have effectively uh, helped Israel enforce a blockade on Gaza. So it is literally ringed. It's like 1.8 million people being locked up uh, inside um, fences and walls. Um, within that area, they have a certain freedom of movement. But of course, they are watched all the time by drones overhead and they can't move in and out. They have no passports. And their entire economic activity is totally controlled by Israel and also by Egypt now at the southern end, because Egypt now has a, a military government which also uh, wants to enforce this blockade. So um, this is a, 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 a situation which is um, it's, it's like a, a sort of obvious ticking time bomb. One can't sort of choose cliches. Uh, which ha have more meaning than that. I mean, you have a, a 1.8 million people who already have enormous grievances and sense of injustice uh, are locked inside this hellhole. They have been forced back into sort of living in virtual medieval times. You cross over the gates at Eretz checkpoint from Israel into Gaza and you go from a, a super modern town like Ashkelon, uh, where there are sort of uh, brand new apartment blocks and factories and state of the art um, sort of Silicon Valley type areas and um, enormous car parts of shining, spanking new cars waiting to be sold. And you cross over the border into Gaza and there are Gazans uh, driving around with horses and carts, um, living in bombed out um, bombed out houses following last summer's war. Um, not a single house has been re reconstructed. 
since that war in which uh, 2,000, more than 2,000 Gazans died, 500 of them children. And so you begin to build up a picture of desperation. Now, one of the things that surprised me on my last visit to Gaza was that actually more people hadn't turned to these extremist solutions. Gazans are the most wonderful and sort of patient and, and, and dignified people who who really 99.9% of them want little more than a, than a state and, and, and some safety in which to bring up their families. Um, and they resist this sort of extremism. But obviously, amongst the young in particular, uh, more are turning to this radical solution. Well, and as you say in the article, what they share with those who are turning to radicalism is the very same hopelessness of their situation, that they really just have no way out. I was reminded in your article when you mentioned the drones, and just now when you mentioned the drones, of an article that ran, I don't know, four or five years ago in the Washington Post, where the whole first half, of course, is poor little Israel has no choice. But then the second half of the article is about what it's like to be a little kid growing up in Gaza and have these robot assassins in the air with their buzz in your ear well, all day, every day, right. and how and terrifying actually, it is to go down yeah. the street even, you know? It is terrifying, but it's psychologically also very damaging. I, I, I This time I met a bunch of... Of, of kids in their early 20s, late late teens, early 20s, a whole new generation has grown up. They call themselves the gen- drone generation. You know, they, they basically have only grown up under the period of siege. Uh, they, they've never left Gaza. The absolutely astonishing thing is these young women and these young men, they've never left Gaza. They've never even been to the West Bank. They've never been to Jerusalem. These places are a mystery to them as much as London or New York is a mystery to them. Amazing. I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt. Gaza. We got we got to hold it right here, Sarah, to, to take this break. But uh, hold it right there, and everybody, we'll be right back with Sarah Helms. She wrote this very important piece in the New York Review of Books, ISIS in Gaza. More in a minute. Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime Future Freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show, scotthorton.org, Liberty Radio Network, etc., etc., I'm talking with Sarah Helm. You got to read this piece. It'll be uh, maybe the spotlight. Uh, certainly, we'll be running at the viewpoints tomorrow on antiwar.com. It's at the New York Review of Books, ISIS in Gaza. And uh, I'm sorry, we're, we were interrupted by the break, Sarah. We were talking about the self-identified drone generation in Gaza yeah. and the the hopelessness that uh, would open. Uh, a youth's ears to uh, the propaganda, the likes of ISIS, huh? Yeah, absolutely. But I just want to say before uh, before talking more about those that are drawn to ISIS, there are many, 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 many who 
on in a totally different direction, of course. And I mean, what's really striking is that um, to me that, that for the first time, really, since the last war of summer 2014, these young people are, are, are trying to, um, to to respond in new ways. There are many, many just trying to get out. They're desperate to get visas. They're just they're looking for jobs or or internships, you know, abroad. They're looking for people to sponsor them. But they can't. They cannot leave. Very, very few of them can leave. So that's one thing. There's a sort of there's a kind of attempt at an exodus for the, for the majority who can't leave. They are sort of turning in on themselves. They are resigned. They don't want anything to do with all the old style um, kind of, you know, PLO, uh, DFLP, PFLP factions. They're bored with what they're fathers and their fathers fathers did and how they fought they're bored with the so-called third intifada they think that's a waste of time and you know some of them are masses of them are trying to be journalists they're looking at other ways of resisting by sort of getting the story out to the rest of the world that at least makes them feel that they're contributing somehow to their own future and you know i even came across quite a few who who were sort of turning to atheism which was the other end of the story of course they're fed up with religion of all sorts, you know, and they want to be individuals and, and, and they want to get away from this sort of diktat. So there's a whole, the only hope in a way, I mean, it's a desperate sort of hope, but nevertheless, they're very admiral, some of these kids, and they're making do with what they've got with very, very little resources. And, and some of them are kind of going inside their own homes, closing the door and, 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 and disavowing all forms of religion, which is, which is a new thing for me. Uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't come across that before. But of course, on the other side of it, there are those uh, who who are drawn to the religious side, and and that's where the danger lies. Mm-hmm. All right, now, so the thing about it is, and you write this up in the article again, everybody. Very important one. I really hope you'll look at it. That these groups, at least self-proclaimed ISIS affiliates, are have been committing attacks inside the Gaza Strip. Is that right? Yes, it is right. Now, about it, it, there have always been groups um, uh, way back, um, perhaps 20 years, these peaceful Salafi extremists were present in Gaza in very small numbers. And then after really after 9-11 and, and, and Osama bin Laden sort of rose to prominence, he became a hero amongst some of these groups and some of them began to turn to violence then and small acts of violence were already being committed inside the Gaza Strip by by small groups who followed Osama bin Laden and, and declared themselves, you know, just declared their allegiance to Al Qaeda. Um, Hamas, of course, then finds themselves in an incredibly difficult position because they're running the Gaza Strip and they are also Islamists, but they have to crack down on these people who are way, way further extreme than they are. And they have largely successfully controlled these ultra extremists. But since the um, the war of 2014 and the rise of ISIS, uh, in 2014 in, in, in Iraq and in Syria and then later just on Gaza's doorstep in the Sinai, um, these groups have uh, turned to ISIS because ISIS have, have declared that they've already got a caliphate. They've got this, uh, this, this kind of state in heaven, this caliphate, this religious uh, caliphate, and, and the Palestinians haven't even got a state and they think that ISIS seem to be better at achieving their ends than any of their political leaders ever have. So they've turned to that. And and this is an extraordinary development for the Palestinians who have always disavowed this kind of extremism because 
they're very that they do want a secular state they want a country mm-hmm. and they didn't have a, this was their main goal their main purpose always but and it still is so for the by far the majority of palestinians but amongst a small and in my view growing minority um the situation has become so hopeless and so lacking in any sort of other alternative that they are turning to isis and and it gives them a certain glamour a certain purpose they can kind of link up with people on the internet in syria and iraq and so they've been setting off uh, small explosions that they've blown up hamas cars and hamas facilities because they think hamas are too moderate and that they shouldn't be negotiating with israel and they fired off rockets into israel which is the real danger because hamas at the moment are trying to hold the ceasefire for fear of sparking another massive israeli retaliation but uh, these isis uh, groups uh, isis supporting groups are breaking the ceasefire they don't believe in the ceasefire so uh, the possible possibility of a of a major new conflagration is is clear mm-hmm. well and we've seen in the past that the israelis are perfectly willing to hold hamas and all of gaza responsible for groups outside of hamas's control getting a couple of rockets off before hamas can catch them and kill them and but oh well yeah. good enough as an excuse and then so speaking of which benjamin netanyahu says well hamas is isis there's no damn difference anyway uh is that right well th- this is what he says and this is what many many on the right and further right of, of netanyahu say and, and this is the terrifying thing because i mean if he wants to say that we might as well say the extreme jewish settlers you know are are the same as the Likud. I mean, uh, the extreme Jewish settlers who, 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 as a recent court case has, has revealed, um, are willing to burn alive a uh, Palestinian, including a Palestinian baby, uh, would not uh, be associated with the mainstream Likud. But that's the kind of stupid and pointless and very destructive thinking. Of course, Hamas now are distancing them themselves as far as they can from ISIS. Uh, they have offered to talk they have offered to open new talks now of course hamas itself is riven with division because there are groups within hamas who for whatever reason either because they're disgruntled because they haven't been promoted or because they genuinely have the view that hamas has become too moderate are breaking away and supporting some of these isis groups so it's not all about religion a lot of it's about sort of politics and political maneuvering uh, so to that extent Bibi has a point in that there are people within Hamas and within Al-Qassam, the military brigades, who, who move away and support uh, the ISIS groups who they think are likely to have more effect. Um, but that is a very far cry from saying they're all the same thing. They're not um, the mainstream. I have no time for ISIS at all and will openly disavow them and openly abhor their methods. But I should just add, that's not to say that Hamas, of course, are the nice guys. I mean, they're capable of vile acts. They're capable of extreme cruelty. They're capable of of, uh, extreme cruelty against their own uh, Palestinians who they find are collaborating or not towing the line um, in Gaza. But they they stand a very, very long way apart from uh, the ISIS model. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you write in the article about how uh, back, I think it was in 2007, was the big battle where they killed uh, 20-something of these guys and really shut them down. And then I think the article actually begins with you saying in recent months, Hamas has been doing as much as they can to arrest these guys and or kill them. 
Is that right? Yeah. I mean, they're absolutely terrified that ISIS might take hold. I mean, if you think about how surprised the world was by the way ISIS suddenly kind of grew up and emerged as this monster in, 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 in Iraq and then in Syria before the world had really had time to to take note of the fact. And then we find, of course, that it's it's there in the suburbs of, of every European capital, um, not only European capital, but, you know, as events show all over the world. Um, so, uh, but of course, what, what the Gaza situation in, in many ways is unique because um, it is enclosed. Therefore, if ISIS were to begin to achieve a significant amount of support and power and arms, and you don't need that many, as we all know, to have a... Oh, no. Skype problems. Oh, no, it's my computer is crashing. Oh, man, if that ain't the saddest thing. What a horrible end to that interview. I should have taken discount electronics up on that $150 special yesterday. Very sorry to Sarah and everybody that the interview ended that way. But anyway, that was um, Sarah Helm, ISIS in Gaza in the New York Review of Books. Really good one. Go and read it, please. Thanks. Hey, all Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday. And The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world, all specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. Yeah, my Skype computer exploded, so sorry that Sarah Helm interview ended so rough there. In fact, let me do her a favor real quick. She asked me to mention to you guys uh, that book, Loyalty, that uh, we mentioned at the beginning there, that was her play, and it's about Bush and Blair and how they went to war. So if you're interested in plays about stuff like that, that sounds good. It's uh, Sarah Helm, Loyalty. Uh, she definitely, uh, I definitely owe her at least that much for, uh, the end of her, uh, interview coming to such a tragic conclusion there. All right. Uh, but next up is Jackie Shine. And, um, I was telling you before, uh, our friend JP Sotilli sent me this link yesterday inside the police industrial complex. Terrifying. Uh, psmag.com, the Pacific Standard, psmag.com. Welcome to the show. Jackie, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing really good. I really appreciate you joining us here and really appreciate this journalism. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that even though I live in the world I live in, in the country that I live in, um, I still live in proximity to people like you who show up at things like this and write all about them because you couldn't catch me dead there. But uh, <laughs> I sure am happy to read this thing. 
just for the terror and the thrill oh, of that. Um, inside the police industrial complex, the convention of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the international one, huh? Yes, it actually started as a North American organization in 1893. At the time, it was only... Uh, Canadian and United States law enforcement officials, but has since grown much, much bigger. And I think there were people from something like 70 countries there. Amazing. So it's, it's 650 really, really exhibitors, big. you say, here. Yes. Uh, yeah. So this was huge. And now, I'm sorry, I may have missed it. Is Do you, do you have a ballpark estimate of the turnout for this thing? How many people? Are... Um, about 14,000 people came. And so these are, uh, I guess, presumably the chiefs and their smitherses and their purchasing bureaucrat, so that kind of thing, huh? Right. And there also were a number of lower-ranking law enforcement officials there just at the expo, because anybody who uh, served in some sort of law enforcement capacity was able to get an expo badge. I see. So, but about 70, 75% of the people at the expo had purchasing power within their organization. Mm-hmm. But in other words, I mean, just as the introduction here, there's nothing subtle about this whatsoever. This is basically the most ostentatious type of a exposition that you could put on at any convention center for any industry. It's just in this one, it's weapons for cops. Right. Good times. Uh, is there video? Um, unless somebody else shot some, no. I, I took some photos that are on my Twitter Feed, which is Deer Splenda, which is a nickname that doesn't make it. It's mm-hmm. a long story. But anyway, I have some photos from the expo that I took on the expo floor. I haven't seen any video of it, but it, it was about the size of four football fields. Um, McCormick Place is the largest convention center in the United States. Amazing. See, because this is the fun part of it. We're not even into the terrible part of it. But the fun part of it is the part where no one there, except maybe you, knows that this is embarrassing knows that this smacks of corruption, knows that this smacks of something that previous generations used to call a thing called conflict of interest, where, you know, people have wrong incentives for (laughs) deploying their political uh, or legal authority, you know, for doing it Mm -hmm. in ways uh, contrary to the public good and the law. And here... Nobody even notices. It's all just a bunch of fun. It's a big, you know, four-day weekend for the guys or whatever, right? Right. Right. That's the part I like. Okay, so let's get to the part I don't like. Tell us about all the scary stuff you saw and what they're going to do with it to us. Well, the expo was huge, and I was really surprised by how many brands I recognized there, like how many multinational and national corporations were represented there. I was definitely expecting to see a bunch of vendors who did specific law enforcement products that I didn't recognize or know much about, but I was not expecting to see Champion Athletic Wear or Dell or Ford or GM or the makers of the Roomba or Xerox or Thompson Reuters. So there's a huge number of companies were involved in um, marketing products to law enforcement officials. And outside of that, on the sponsorship level, there were also a number of big companies and firms, including Accenture and the accounting firm Ernest & Young, who were underwriting the conference. I don't know why 
Ernest Young has an interest in, in underwriting a police convention. Like, that, that, that doesn't quite make sense to me. But nonetheless, here they were. Yeah, well, there's a conflicting interest in there somewhere they wouldn't have bothered, right? It isn't be- mm-hmm. just because they're public, uh, publicly interested citizens. Maybe they get contracts to double-check the books of some of these departments or whatever it is. But there's right. obviously there's obviously something in it for them. Uh, that kind of right. goes without saying even. But so, um, so, yeah, so tell us about, I mean, I guess it's not, shouldn't be too much of a surprise, right, that the automakers would be there because... Uh, of course, cops need new cars all the time, and is it going to be a Chevy or is it going to be a Ford? That kind of thing. Is that the kind of lobbying that's going on there? Yeah, and I was I was surprised, almost at my surprise, because when I, as soon as I thought about it for a minute, I was like, everybody knows that that Crown Victorias right are a standard police car. I had just not ever given much thought to uh, the, the fact that that Ford Motor Company is the same Ford, Ford Motor Company that um, sells cars to civilians every day. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's the whole thing about um, Nick Terse's great book, The Complex, where he says there's too many things that go in the hyphens to even talk about it, right? Where it's mm-hmm. the, the military, industrial, media, scientific, academic, uh, police, and tube socks and toothpaste and and cars and trucks and everything complex. You know, if you make rivets, you want the contract to make the rivets for the boots for the army because otherwise some other rivet company is getting that contract. So you are in on it now to some degree. You know, how much the the rivet company actually puts into lobbying, it isn't much, but in the scheme of things, all that adds up to a lot of vested interests in keeping things the way they are and or making them worse. Right. That's and that... the other thing that was, was interesting to me was thinking about the relationship between this, these economic exchanges and the influence that that has on developing technologies for police, especially because the, uh, the public is increasingly looking toward technological solutions to problems of police brutality and use of force. Um, so I had gotten a half dozen emails from different body camera manufacturers who were all going to be at the show. And at first I thought, I'm going to go talk to all of them, see what each one of them is doing, and see, you know, who's doing the really cutting-edge stuff and what might be the best product here. But it didn't take long before I figured out that the product itself is actually not really the question because the product itself is not necessarily the solution. Um, What the public thinks body cams might be used for and what police agencies think they're going to be used for are different things. Uh And we keep talking about what the camera captures, right? Well, the camera's going to capture it as though what the camera captures is something we all agree on and something that is um, easily defined and something that's neutral in some way. Like, we can all say this was a use of force incident. That's not really how it works. Um, There are certain things that we all agree are... Bad, right? The fact that Eric Garner's death was, was recorded, everybody thinks that that was bad. What my conjecture is, is what would have happened if he hadn't died at the end of that encounter? Everything else had been the same. Would it have raised any flags within the NYPD for use of force? I'm not sure it would have. So there's a lot that the camera captures that you and I might find problematic, but is held to a different standard within a police agency. There's no consensus between the public and uh, the police complex about what those things mean. We're not sharing common terms or a common understanding. Right. 
All right. Now, I'm sorry I got to stop you here, but that's a great place to pick this conversation up on the other side of this break. I'm talking with Jackie Shine. She wrote this very important piece. I really hope you'll read it. It's Inside the Police Industrial Complex at psmag.com. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, so welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I'm talking with Jackie Shine. She wrote this thing for psmag.com, the Pacific Standard, inside the police industrial complex about this gigantic police chief uh, technology convention, you know, things for sale convention for cops. Um, and, well, they had the expo, and then plus they had their annual meeting or whatever. Um but anyway, so where we left off, we we're talking about the cameras and she's making this very important point about, um, you know, and, and as you say in the article here, Jackie, about how uh, the vast majority of violence, uh, you know, unjustified police violence is very low level type stuff or not even necessarily very low level, but lower level type stuff. Not necessarily just capping people in the brain all day long, although they do kill three people a day every single day, but um out of many more arrests than that uh but many of which are not justified but i think what you're trying to say before the break there was so when we have the footage of all of that what ends up happening is instead of their kind of getting away with bloody murder and doing the wrong thing unofficially in a way abusing their power that this will be normalized and we'll have moved the bar of what's tolerable behavior from the police that much more. Ah, come on. It's not like they killed them. They only did just this much. Right. And and part of the issue here is that um, the 1989 Supreme Court decision that um, set the legal standards for use of deadly force put so much of it in the mind of a police officer. A police officer can use deadly force when there, there's an immediate threat to the safety of the officers or others. And I think that that means that police in general sort of have a broad ambit in which to operate vis-a-vis what is acceptable behavior. If the goal is met, whatever the goal is, right, the goal is met, the means uh, don't matter so much. Mm -hmm. Well, and we see that all the time with them attempting to escalate situations so that they can use force in that sense and be within you put themselves in a situation run toward a car that's driving away and then say oh boo-hoo he was trying to run me down as he shoots through the window that kind of thing. right yep so and then now here's the other thing about the um the uh, body cams is i mean well there's a couple of things obviously the first thing is it is a little bit of a 
of a double-edged sword in our favor in this sense that the cops, assuming they can't just turn it off whenever they feel like it or whatever, um, the cops are a bit more mindful of what they do and what they say and whether they call people by racial slurs or not and whether, you know, they they give a, a elbow or maybe an open hand instead or whatever, these kinds of things. There's a little bit, when we've seen, as you mentioned in here, um, hard to measure, but somewhat fewer complaints and that kind of thing. And that makes sense. And we're living in a society where people are desperate for accountability or they know they can't get any accountability, but you know, maybe the slightest threat of some will help cool these cops off a little bit. And apparently that is working. But then what I'm really interested in is what the body cam salesmen are telling the cops when they're trying to get rid of them. There is it. They're saying this will just protect you from protesters or, I'm more worried about the more nefarious end of the biometric data and every body cam being hooked into the network and every cop basically scanning the face and or the iris of everybody on the sidewalk that he walks by. And or the license plate. Yeah, That's or the license plate, the exactly. About mm-hmm. and and it can all just be automated, right? So that then we're turning, mm-hmm. we're in the name of protecting ourselves, we're really cutting ourselves guts open in a way, or here, you know, stabbing ourselves um, by empowering them over us in a way where they never could have done it before. Right. It's the same way in which the NSA was empowered to sort of indiscriminately collect citizens' data on the justification that there might be something there. And then there becomes a set of questions about what happens to that data. Where does it go? And what other uses might it be put to that we hadn't imagined? Right. Yeah, that's really something. So now, at the, did you get to hear the shtick of the body camera salesman there at the convention? I heard the shtick that they gave me knowing I was a journalist. So whether or not that was different than how they might have talked to uh a law enforcement official, I can't really say. Uh-huh. I mean, it's not that I thought that the body camera manufacturers weren't interested in improving uh, improving the situation for policing in the U.S., but their clients are the police, not the public. And so right. it's one thing to say, and this sort of seems like a, a may seem like a nitpicky part, but I think it's a big deal. It's one thing to say, that um, cameras will reduce complaints. It's another thing to say that cameras will resolve complaints. Right. Um, right. And, and part of that is because I can, I can easily imagine, I think we all can, a situation in which a civilian who has, you know, quote unquote, acted badly on camera may be afraid to complain, even though they have a, just, a legitimate reason to do so. So in, in that sense, you know, on the end of the agency, Reducing complaints is important, but it's what what those complaints are about and whether or not they are resolved properly that the public is concerned with. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, if you ever listen to any of these people, the, the best spin that they could put on it is we must restore the public's faith in the police. You know, not that we got to really necessarily make the police treat the people any better, but we got to figure out a way to get the people on board with whatever the status quo is. Yes, and the message that I heard at the conference over and over again was that many, many law enforcement executives do believe it's a perception problem. Right. They should just send Karen Hughes and Condoleezza Rice to do a little speaking tour 
and just explain that, yes, we kill you, but only because we love you and we're trying to bring you democracy and freedom. And then we'll all be convinced, right? (laughs) I know I am. Right. Something like that. Yeah, right. Sorry. Anyway, uh, I'm sorry I talk so much when I'm supposed to be interviewing, but I really did appreciate this piece. I do hope everyone will go and read it. The Police Industrial Complex. It's a, a great little window into how this works, and especially the paragraph that includes all the corporations who, you know, spend, as you say, uh, spend quite a bit of money making sure that they have their place at the table. They have their table at the convention and, and make sure to, you know, it'd be interesting maybe to see just, you know, what percentage of their annual sales are to, to government, especially these companies that, as you said, you don't, initially think of as government contractors, right? You think of Ford as making trucks, not like Lockheed, just making stuff for the military. But it'd be interesting to see just how much are they making off of the U.S. Treasury versus off of private customers and voluntary sales. Right. Very interesting stuff here. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much for coming on the show here, Jackie. Appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. Very good stuff. That's Jackie Shine. The uh, website is psmag.com, the Pacific Standard, which is a new one for me. I don't know. Uh, It's pretty good. psmag.com inside the police industrial complex. And uh, when we get back, Andy Worthington on actual progress and closing Gitmo. Really? No. Really? Right after this. Hey, all Scott here. The thing is, I need you guys to help me to get these download numbers up. So do me a favor and sign up for the podcast feeds of this show. You can choose the whole show or just the interviews at iTunes and Stitcher. All the buttons you need are at the top of the right margin at scotthorton.org. The more subscribers I have, the more iTunes and Stitcher will help promote the show to new listeners. If you're a hardcore fan, brand new or from way back, please leave them customer ratings and reviews, too. Trying to get these wars ended. Hey, y'all, guess what? You can now order transcripts of any interview I've done for the incredibly reasonable price of two and a half bucks each. Listen, finding a good transcriptionist is near impossible, but I've got one now. Just go to scotthorton.org slash transcripts, enter the name and date of the interview you want written up, click the PayPal button, and I'll have it in your email in 72 hours max. You don't need a PayPal account to do this. Man, I'm really going to have to learn how to talk more good. That's scotthorton.org slash transcripts. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Uh, next up, it's our friend Andy Worthington. He might be a Brit, but he's still America's best guy on Guantanamo Bay. Hey, Andy, how are you doing? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing real good. Appreciate you joining us again on the show. Um, You're welcome. Hey, everybody, go to andyworthington.co.uk, andyworthington.co.uk, and uh, that's where you can find all of Andy's stuff, uh, tons of writing there, as well as links to his book, The Guantanamo Files, profiles of everybody ever held at Guantanamo, 760-something or whatever it was, um, and then uh, also his documentary film uh, that he put together is called Outside the Law. And you can find all that there at andyworthington.co.uk. And am I right that you're here in the United States right now? I am. I'm in New York City at the moment, Scott. That's cool. What for? I bet for some anti-Guantanamo Bay gulag prison activism, huh? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I've just been... uh, I was obviously in 
uh, DC, as I have been on January the 11th um, every year since 2011, calling for the closure of the prison. Um, and then I come up to New York to um, to do some events and meet some people. So there's a, if anyone's in the New York City area and listening to this, I'm at uh, Revolution Books in Harlem tonight talking about uh, the campaign to free Shaka Armour from Guantanamo and the ongoing campaign to get the prisoner clo- prison closed in the last year of Obama's presidency. Yeah, right on, That's man. Seven, 7 o'clock. Good deal. Uh, Revolution Books there in New York. Okay, so tell me this, man. Um, I don't ever take this Obama guy seriously when he says he's going to do something good. If he threatens to do something horrible, you can pretty much take that to the bank. It's pretty easy to tell the difference. Um, but so he said in the State of the Union there's something about how he still wants to, but it was framed in the form of continuing to beg Congress for permission to close the prison. Uh, this president, he can start a war, but uh, he can't close a prison, even though he is the commander-in-chief of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, and they have uh, no jurisdiction whatsoever in the Congress over him other than to... Uh, you know, well, in a in a case like this, they could impeach the president if they wanted to fight about it. Other than that, they couldn't do anything to countermand his order. And um, but then he, I guess, does seem to be doing as much as he can uh, because tell him the brand new breaking news from today. Well, yeah, ten ten men have been released, which is the largest single group of prisoners to be released in uh, what it feels like in living memory, actually, Scott. But it's for many, many, many years. Uh, yeah, 10 Yemenis have been sent to Oman. Um, so these are guys who, uh, you know, have all been approved for release um, since uh, January 2010 when the um, high-level interagency task force that the president set up when he took office back in January 2009 had finished its deliberations about the prisoners. They spent a year looking at the cases of all the guys to decide whether... They should recommend them for prosecution or release or even, unfortunately, in many cases, for ongoing imprisonment without charge or trial. Um, And these were people that they recommended um, should be released. Um, And it's taken, you know, all this time, really rather terribly, um, to get them out of there because of a long-standing reluctance on the part of the entire U.S. establishment um, to release people back to Yemen. And, of course, Scott, you know, when these guys were approved for release, Yemen was much more stable than it is now. Right. Um, and, and well, took, what else it, has changed? Is is there anything, I mean, as far as Obama's concerned, uh, he could have let them go all this time, or is there anything different in the law? I mean, there was an actual prohibition on transfers to Yemen that existed um, in, in the legislation for a while. But it expired? Uh, It's no longer there? I mean, he actually imposed his own ban on releasing prisoners to Yemen after there was um, an underpants bomb, if you recall, Mm -hmm. many, many years ago. He then lifted that in 2013, but he still didn't do anything about it until until the end of 2014. Um, And at, at that point, it was clear that, I mean, I think it's fair to say, you know, Yemen is in a terrible state because of the... Um, the Saudi bombing of it in particular. Um, it's not a safe place to return people to. So what the gov- U.S. government finally did was to start seriously asking other countries to take these guys in. And that's, that's you know, been a huge um, removal of an obstacle to reducing the prisoner population and being able, honestly, to talk about perhaps actually getting the place closed. Now, so, yeah, on this these is a ten... Good thing. I mean, 
10 other guys have been sent to Oman, other Yemenis have been sent to um, all kinds of other countries. It's leading to very weird situations, of course, Scott. I mean, a couple of guys were, um, just last week, sent to uh, Ghana. So, you know, what kind of surreal world are we living in? A couple of Yemenis are transplanted from Guantanamo to Ghana, where they know no one. But, you know, um, it, every, everything is a step in the right direction, I think, to um, to finally... Um, looking at the possibility that we can get the place closed. Yeah, uh, it's really an amazing situation. But so you're saying that um, as far as the congressional ban on Obama moving these guys, I guess the congressional ban is just on him moving them to the United States. Is that it? Well, no, I mean, I think they have actually imposed bans on releasing um, prisoners to a variety of countries. I think they added a whole, uh, a few more uh, to that list in the latest legislation. But because... He has, you know, because they all agree that no one's being sent back to Yemen, um, then then he's at liberty to find other countries that will accept them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Now, so of these 10 guys, um, is it just a fair assumption that they just happen to be Arab and in Afghanistan, so close enough to Al-Qaeda? Or is it possible? Or do you know, were some of them actually friends of bin Laden and Zawahiri, but... Uh, the government decided they've done their time, or can you characterize any of this? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm just laughing because I'm thinking that if, you know, if any of these guys actually were to have been standing anywhere near Osama bin Laden or Wayman al Zawahiri, then they'd be safe in Pakistan so, right now. I know, yeah. Those guys would probably have been turning to their bodyguards and going, you know, who's this little kid standing next to me? Get him away from me. They were nobodies, you know. There's no way that they would be uh, be having anything to do with these people. Um, you know, some of them were were low-level Taliban foot soldiers. Some of them were were um, not that. I think it's uh, I think a case can clearly be made that some of these people were um, completely um, innocent of even any kind of military activity. Um, and you know, and as as we know, Scott, people who are accused of being members of the Taliban or of, of Supporting the Taliban in any way were not necessarily involved in any activities against the United States. They had all been in Afghanistan before the 9-11 attacks uh, when they were supposed to be helping the Taliban to rid themselves of uh, the menace of another Muslim group of people in Afghanistan, which was the Northern Alliance. Right, exactly. And they were in the middle of that war, and many of them had just surrendered uh, yeah. to the Americans, never fought the Americans at all, never had a chance yeah. to. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I mean, I've just been looking at the stories. There are people, you know, who had their habeas corpus petitions granted years ago, um, who then had their habeas corpus petitions overturned because the um, the D.C. Circuit Court, um, for naked ideological political reasons, um, was adamant that no one should be released from Guantanamo by having their habeas petition granted. Um there's, uh, the, I just read a story of somebody who was a Yemeni who was initially recommended for transfer out of Guantanamo. Um, the intention at the time was to transfer him to continued detention, although I don't know how they thought that they could, um, you know, insist upon that. But anyway, he was approved for transfer out of the prison to, to allegedly to continued detention in April 2004. Oh, go ahead. You got 20 well, seconds. How's that? You know, nearly 12 years ago, he yeah. was um, he was told we're we're making the plans to 
move you out of this prison, and only now has it finally happened. Twelve years. Well, you know, it doesn't sound like it compared to some of the other stuff, but I think if anybody puts himself in that position, that amounts to torture itself, if you ask me. Right. But hang tight right there, Andy. We'll be right back, y'all, with the great Andy Worthington right after this. Hey, all Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. If this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with Andy Worthington. The great Andy Worthington. The Guantanamo Files is the book. AndyWorthington.co.uk is his uh, great website. And we're talking about, uh, well, a few things uh, here and still more to get to. Uh, but the big news today, Obama sent 10 Yemenis to Oman, which is right next door to Yemen, and uh, let them out of the Guantanamo prison. So uh, a couple of questions here. Uh, I think I heard you right, and I think I already know this, but I might be missing something too, Andy. Is it right? There's three categories of guys being held in the Guantanamo prison. They're the guys who the government claims are going to be tried at some point in front of a military commission. Then they're the guys who they admit that they do not have anything like the evidence that they would need to convict these guys, even in a ridiculous kangaroo Guantanamo military commission court. But, oh, well, we're just going to hold them for the rest of their lives anyway. And then there are those who are cleared for release. I believe this is a completely distinct category from the former. People who are cleared from, I could be wrong, uh, people who are cleared for release um, who may or may not ever be released. <laughs> is that basically right? That's basically right, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think what we, uh, what we can say is definitely happening here is that that latter category of people approved for release is finally being released. And a State Department spokesman um, said today that um, all 34 men in that category are expected to be freed by the summer. Um, and, you know, that okay. could not come true, but I think it's, um, I think they're not just saying it as an empty promise. They are intending to do that. And I think we can presume that discussions are underway with all kinds of countries to actually, you know, um, help take these guys. Mm -hmm. the, the really interesting bit that everybody needs to focus on um, now, Scott, apart from, actually, I should say, first of all, just 10 men are facing or, or have faced trials um, of the 93 men who are still held. And in Guantanamo's entire history, when 779 men were held, um, the total is just 15 of people who, have, um, who are currently facing trials or have faced trials. Um, and, of course, you know, the appeals court has been wiping out some of those, some of those convictions. Um, so the legal um, outcome of Guantanamo has been, um, you know, disgracefully poor 
and um, and continues to be uh, an absolute disgrace. Um, but let's look at that, that that category in the middle that you mentioned, which is of the people um, who they call too dangerous to release, um, but don't have the evidence to put them on trial, which of course is very worrying. It means that the evidence isn't actually evidence. And there are 49 men in this category at the moment. Um, the interesting thing is that a review process was set up in 2013 to look at these men's cases. Now, this was promised in 2011 when President Obama set up a, uh, established an executive order to hold the two dangerous to release prisoners uh, recommended for ongoing detention by the task force. And he promised then that they would have reviews of their cases that would take place within a year. He's very good at making promises that things will happen within a year and then not fulfilling them, as he did with the closure of Guantanamo. So it took until 2013 for these reviews to start, and they've been taking place very slowly. They involve representatives of the, um, the main government departments, the intelligence agencies. They meet in a, a, a secure location, and by video they talk to the prisoner and their lawyers, and, then, and military representatives assigned to the prisoners in Guantanamo when the men make a case for why they should go home. And what's been happening with this process, although it's been very slow, is that it has been very successful for the prisoners. So uh, they have made decisions in 18 cases so far, and in 15 of those cases they've recommended the prisoners for release. That's the good news for them. The bad news is that there are over 40 men still waiting for reviews, and of course unless they speed it up, um, those aren't going to be completed until 2020. So men who were told in 2011 that this review process uh, would be completed within a year are actually now looking at it taking nine years to complete just a review of their cases unless somebody um, significantly accelerates this process this year. And that somebody, I think we have to conclude, needs to be the president of the United States. Yeah. Do you know how these guys got on a separate list than the ones who were reviewed and cleared two years before? Yeah, it's a very good question, isn't it? What it is is that the files, you know, in some cases would suggest that there appeared to be, uh, you know, some kind of connection to something that looked a little bit more troubling than the general complete absence of anything in so many people's files. So some some suggestion that they found vaguely credible um, you know, but this is this is in plowing through material that's so unreliable in general because the kind of statements that are being made are being made by the prisoners about themselves and their fellow prisoners in conditions that were not conducive to them telling the truth. Of course. But you know, at some point they all sat down and went, "Ooh, ooh, we're not we're not entirely happy about recommending this guy. There seems to be something." And also, um, I think it's fair to say that these, some of these guys were people who had made threats against their captors during the many, many long years of their um, unjustified imprisonment and, and abuse. Mm -hmm. So I think if at any point in that time you, instead of being docile, had decided that you were going to um, try and fight against the circumstances of your detention and that that might involve making threats against the people who were holding you, then they would regard you as somebody... Um, who you, who couldn't be released because, you know, you would be dangerous. Yeah. 
And I mean, and, you know, put yourself in that position. You exactly. Know, That's what I was ways. just going to say is, you know what, this sounds like it's such an old issue. Oh, Horton and uh, Worthington talking about Guantanamo again or where. And it just it's hard sometimes to put yourself in the spot where, no, you're locked in a cage. You have one life and then you're dead. And yeah. this is how you have to spend it. It's locked in a cage without charges for decades. Really? At the hands of the Americans? The red, yeah. white, and blue hand on their heart pledge allegiance to the Constitution? Americans couldn't be. And this is a nightmare. And, you know, again, of course, why are they on that list? Because, sorry, boss, we don't have any evidence against them. Uh, yeah, that's because they didn't do it. And, and the fact that this is going on and that we're, this is, this show's lie. This is not a rerun of some decade old conversation between the two of us. This is January 2016. We're still arguing about this. The last year of Obama's presidency. This is still going on. And let me ask you this and I, uh, maybe we'll have room for more, but, um, what more, I mean, other than just closing down the whole thing and daring the the Congress to impeach and remove him. What more can he do, uh, you know, within the confines that Congress has set up in the recent NDAAs, et cetera? Well, I'm not really sure what he can do now, uh, Scott. You know, I mean, what we've been talking about is that if he releases the guys that are approved for release, if, and, you know, and this is where campaigners need to put pressure on him, he speeds up the review process so that, you know, by by summer going into fall, he's got dozens more people who they throw up their hands and say, you know, these guys are not too dangerous to release. Let's release them as well. Mm-hmm. He's dealing with, you know, we. I would say, you know. Well, the 34 who are already cleared, can he just set them free or he's got to just find a place to send them or what's yeah, the hold I mean, up he's there? Gotta find, he's got to find homes for some of them because, well, most of them are Yemenis. So, you know, he's got to find third countries that are prepared to take them in. But if he gets to the point where, you know, it's significantly less than it is now, um, you know, he's got more more leverage then on Congress to say, you know, the insane amount of money it's costing to hold these guys is ridiculous. We need to close this place. We need to move them to the U.S. mainland. And that will be the men facing trials. And, you know, it will be a small number of other people. But the important thing to remember about that is that uh, they will have rights under the U.S. Constitution on the U.S. mainland that they don't have in Cuba. Cuba, the um, essentially all the legal avenues to challenge the basis of their detention have been shut down um, through this this um, terrible um, decisions by the appeals court to um, to to stop the lower court from granting the prisoners habeas corpus petitions. It's, it's a dead end. The Supreme Court has refused to to reconsider it. The men have literally had their habeas corpus rights stripped um, by the appeals court. So it would open up a new set of legal challenges, and I think it becomes very difficult for the government to try and justify holding people without charge or trial on the U.S. mainland. There really is, uh, there, are, there are a lot of protections that, um, that, that are designed in the United States to prevent that from happening. And, you know, when we first talked, Scott, we were talking about, about Jose Padilla, um, you know, who was a U.S. citizen who was held as an enemy combatant and tortured on the U.S. mainland. And when Bush was challenged to defend that, he didn't. He put him in the federal court system instead. So, you know, right. what, he, what he's going to have to do is either persuade Congress or he's going to have to, you know, do this unilaterally. And at the moment, I don't know how that's going to happen. But yeah. um, I'm very, I'm, I very much hope that um, he doesn't take his foot off the pedal on this one and that, you know, by next January, we're, we're not 
marking another anniversary. Yeah. But right. I'm, in, I'm not holding my breath for that. <laughs> yeah, no, me either. <laughs> Don't. It's a long time. Hey, listen, man, you're great. Thanks very much, Andy. Appreciate it. Well, it's great talking to you, Scott. Thanks. Talk to you later. Yeah. All right, y'all, that is the great Andy Worthington, andyworthington.co.uk, covering Guantanamo Bay for us. Still, 